Well, good morning. Welcome to Northridge. Glad all of you are here. Um, I know we have several first-time guests uh, here with us uh, as usual today. And so uh, a couple of you I got to meet, some of you I haven't met yet, so I look forward to that. Uh, but we want to say welcome to you. Thanks for taking time out of your busy life and your weekend to spend uh, a little bit of time here worshiping God with us. We believe that this is important, something that we should do, that we're commanded to do. But we just want to say welcome and thank you for taking the time to spend that time with us and, uh, and be here. Um, so when I was 16 years old, that was just a couple of years ago, Okay, it was a few more than a couple. Uh, but when I was nearly, I wasn't quite 16, but I was almost 16 years old, I got something that a lot of almost 16-year-olds get and we get excited about. And what we used to call it, I don't know what they call it now, but they call it the learner's permit. All right? And what this meant was that I could drive a vehicle as long as my parents were in the vehicle with me, all right? Now, I don't know, again, I don't know what they're called now because I don't have other drivers in my house yet. I don't have to worry about that yet, praise the Lord. Um, but, but eventually we'll get there. But I, didn't, I don't know what it was called, but back then it was called the learner's permit. And so, uh, so I had this excitement, this newfound freedom to drive. And I've never been able to do that before. And so my mother, being a, a wonderful, loving mother that she is, she decided uh, that she would take me out for a drive so that I could get some practice, right? Because the only way I can do this is with her in the passenger seat. And so we jumped into the car. And, uh, and years later, this is funny, but years later, I don't know when it was, but she confessed, she admitted to me that during this particular moment, this time when she agreed to go out and help me learn how to drive, drive, she had made a quiet commitment to herself that she was not going to yell or scream throughout the time that we were going to do this. She was not going to lose it, is what she basically was saying. She didn't use those words, but she's not going to lose it. So we get into the car, and I get into the driver's seat, which is really weird and cool and exciting, and she gets into the passenger seat. These are very strange days for both of us, right? And, and so, uh, you know, I kind of check all the things. We go through the mirror thing and all kind of stuff. We're in the garage, and so the garage door goes up, and I start to back out. Now, this is really the first time I've really backed out of a garage. I've driven four-wheelers and things like that. I've done some things, but this is like a bigger vehicle. And so I back out, and, and I don't want to look like I'm too cautious, and so I probably push it a little bit fast. So I back out of the garage. I back out of the driveway. And, and I, my depth perception in driving at this point has not, it hasn't gotten good yet, okay? Uh, let's be honest. This is the first time. And so I drive out, and I'm backing out, backing out, and, I, and I'm kind of pushing on the gas a little bit hard, harder than I need to to be backing out of the driveway. And so we hit the street, and we're going a little bit fast, and I can tell my mother's a little bit on edge already. It's only been four seconds, but whatever. And so we're backing out, and we get to the road, the street where our house is, and I'm still going a little fast, and, we re and I realize, and kind of at the same moment that my mom realizes, we're about to hit the curb on the other side of the street. I didn't turn it fast enough. I'm going a little too fast. And so at this point, she breaks her commitment, and she starts yelling, break, 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 right? Or something to that effect. I just know there was yelling, and there was something about slowing down, right? And so she's yelling, break, break, break. And, and the problem was that I think I got flustered. And so I went for what I thought would be the break, but I hit the gas instead. Oh, yeah. 
I didn't hit it hard, thankfully. <laughs> Otherwise, we would have been changing our neighbor's house, remodeling it. But we didn't quite get that far. But needless to say, it was all in a couple of a seconds, and I finally found the brake. But by the time I did, the car had actually hit the curb, was up in the curb in the neighbor's yard just a little bit, turned sideways diagonally. I'm sure the neighbors really enjoyed this, in a horror movie sort of way, probably. But all that to say, needless to say, that newfound freedom that I had just received soured really quickly, right? It just turned sour really fast, not only for me, but for my mother as well. Needless, actually, this is interesting, the rest of the drive was pretty uneventful. Now, um, from my mom's perspective, she's probably saying that's a lie, all right? But for me, we didn't have any other major moments like that. I didn't hit anything else. We were all good. But the newfound freedom that I had soured quickly. And so today, we're going to continue our series under the surface. We're talking about your soul. We're talking about my soul. We're talking about what the soul is. But more specifically, in this part of the series, we've been talking about for the last few weeks what your soul needs, what it was made to need. We've talked about all kinds of needs that your soul has. And today, we're going to talk about the next thing that your soul needs, and that thing is freedom. Your soul needs freedom. It was made for it. And so we're going to talk a little bit about what this freedom is, but uh, I want to kind of tackle a myth, uh, a problem in our thinking first before we get into it. And this is really important because as we talk about freedom, we have different ideas about what freedom is in this culture, in this country, in, you know, in our lives. And so let's talk a little bit about freedom for a minute. There's a lot of people in this world and in our culture, who believe that following Jesus, that giving yourself to Christianity, to give yourself to God and follow his ways, is actually more stifling and less freedom than if you don't follow Jesus. There's a lot of people in this world that believe that. That if you give your life to Jesus, that you're going to have to live according to this, and that it's going to be more restrictive than what you exist now, being able to do whatever you want. There's a lot of belief in that. In fact, I would say that there are a lot of Christians, people who follow Jesus, that believe that giving your life to Jesus is going to be more restrictive on your life, that you're going to lose some of your freedom rather than gain. My guess is there's some of us in this room that if I were to grill you a little bit, and if you're being really, really honest and not lying to your pastor, I'm, I can't imagine you'd ever do that. Some of us in here believe that. Some of us in here believe that if you would follow Jesus, if you become a follower of Christ, or the fact that you are a follower of Christ, that your life is actually restricted more, that you've actually lost some freedom according to other people who can go out and party and do whatever they want. Let me just tell you that that's a false view. But let me give you an example from God's Word. And this is, this is an important one because if you think back all the way to the Old Testament, to the book of Exodus, the Israelites, remember when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, okay? The whole nation is a slave, they're all of them, there's about a million strong, we don't know exactly how many there were, but probably close to a million people, and every one of them are in slavery to the Egyptians, to Pharaoh. 
Well, God miraculously frees them from slavery and he gets them out under the leadership of Moses and they cross the Red Sea. You remember the parting of the Red Sea and that whole miraculous thing? They escape the army and now they're in the desert. But this is interesting. One of the very first things, it's not the first thing that God does, but one of the very first things that God does with the Israelites is he gives them 10 rules, 10 laws that they have to follow if they're going to be in good with God. You remember those? We call them the Ten Commandments. That's one of the first things that happens after they're freed from slavery. And I have some questions for you. These are some questions. I think these are important questions, and we're going to try to answer them. Had the Israelites traded one form of slavery for a different form of slavery? In our minds, if you think about it. Did the Israelites trade slavery to the Egyptians for slavery to God? I'm just asking the question, did they? Or maybe put it this way. Were they at once bound to Pharaoh, but now they've had to bind themselves to God? Did they just trade who they were bound to? Have they not really gained freedom? In fact, let me ask it this way a little bit more personally. When you give yourself, when you bind yourself to a moral code that goes above and beyond your opinions... Right? So a moral code has to go beyond us. Like, we can't live according to what I think is right or what you think is right. Okay? Then we're getting into the mix where anybody thinks something is right and then they can do it and we have no say in their life. Well, obviously, that's going to be a problem when you get into people like serial killers and things like that who think, oh, yeah, I think this is totally fine. Well, I think we're probably all in agreement that's wrong. There has to be a moral code. So when we bind ourselves to a moral code, in this case, we're talking about following Christ. And so this is our moral code. This is our compass. These are our laws. So when you bind yourself to this, my question is this. Do you lose freedom or do you gain freedom? When you bind yourself to God's word, do you actually gain freedom or do you lose freedom? Have you ever thought about it? Have you ever considered that question? Well, I want to try to answer those questions today. Hard questions. I have my task cut out for me because those are difficult questions. But I want to try to answer them today. So today, as we talk about freedom, I want you to think about two different types of freedom. I want you to think about freedom from versus freedom for. These are two different types of freedom. In fact, they're antithesis versions of freedom. In fact, I would contend, I would argue, that one of these types of freedom is actually not freedom at all. It just masquerades as freedom. So you have freedom from versus freedom for. Let me just explain the two. Freedom from is when you have freedom to do whatever we want. There's no external um, controls or laws limiting what we can do. Okay? Well, whatever that is, you could put anything in there, but there's no external controls on what you have the opportunity to do. So the freedom from is freedom from external controls on your life. Okay? That, that would be one type of freedom. The other type of freedom is the freedom for. This is where the freedom is focused on something that you can become or something, an opportunity that you are supposed to be. It's freedom for rather than the negative side of it. It's the positive side of it. So freedom from is this external control. It's the freedom from external control. Freedom for is more of an internal thing. Okay? So these are the two different types of uh, freedoms that I want to talk about. Now, 
The difference between these are huge. Freedom from contends that that is real freedom, that, that when somebody doesn't control your life, then you have ultimate freedom. Okay? Now, in some aspects, we all know that to some degree that's true. Right? That's why we fight so hard in this country for freedom. I'm not saying freedom is bad. Freedom is really good. It's a great thing. We should fight for it. I believe in that. But freedom from external things is not genuinely true freedom because what it does is if you can do whatever you want, eventually it's going to actually be the opposite of freedom. Okay, let me give you an example. This actually, this example comes from the Soul Keeping book that we've been using for this series by John Ortberg. He uses this, this uh, example, and it hit me pretty hard when he used this, this example because I see this played out all the time. So the example is alcohol. It's, uh, it's the example that he chose to use. So if you think about it, there is no law in this country that limits how much alcohol you can consume in your private home, Right? There are laws that limit, like if you drink and drive, there are laws that, like public drunkenness, right? You can't do certain things and, and get certainly uh, uh, to a level of intoxication in public. But there is no law on the books in our country that says you can't drink this much inside your house, right? There's no external freedom from limit thing. So we have the freedom from any external control on our life in terms of alcohol, okay? So... Let's say that because you have no external control, you have the freedom from that problem, you decide that you're going to get loaded every night, all right? You're just going to get drunk, you're going to get drunk, you're going to get sloshed every night, or most nights, right? Maybe there's a couple nights that you don't, but for the most part, you get loaded every night, okay? Now, here's the problem. What you're going to feel at first is that you have a lot of freedom because you get to do that. You can do that. You can do what you want. There's no external control that says you can do that, right? But the truth is, if you get loaded every night, you're going to quickly find out that your freedom is actually not there. Why? Because what's going to happen is you're going to start having problems. You're going to start having health problems. You're going to start affecting your marriage. You're going to probably embarrass your kids. Maybe, maybe they wouldn't say it. Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. But they're going to be embarrassed of you. Right? Eventually, it's going to threaten your job. You're going to get so to the point where you can't get up and you're going to have to call in sick. And somebody's going to put two and two together and say, they call in sick a lot. And all of a sudden, you realize that your freedom from is not actually freedom. But you've chained yourself. Let me put it this way. If you would do that, you would find out very quickly that you are very free to drink whatever you want, but you're not free to not drink. See how that works? You have the freedom to drink whatever you want. You have the freedom to do whatever you want to do. But the truth is, when it comes down to it, when you want to quit and when you need to quit for the sake of your marriage, for the sake of your life, for the sake of your job, for the sake of whatever it is, and, we could, and it doesn't have to be alcohol. It could be lust. It could be lies. It could be gossip. It, could be, it doesn't matter. You can plug in whatever you want into this equation, this example. All of a sudden, when you want to quit and you can't, then you realize how free you aren't. That is the difference between freedom from and freedom for. And the Bible, of course, talks about freedom quite a bit because God is all about freedom. 
this whole idea that Christianity stifles freedom is completely wrong. Because God actually gave Jesus to you and I. You know why? To give us freedom. (laughs) And we are skewed in the thinking that following Jesus is actually going to restrict our freedom. No, God is saying, no, this is the opposite of that. I'm bringing Jesus to you so you can experience freedom, a greater level of freedom than you've ever known. In fact, Psalm 119, 44 and 45 says this. Listen to what it says. Powerful words. It says, I will keep on obeying your instructions forever and ever. I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. What the writer is saying is, I am free because I've given myself, I've bound myself by my choice to God's law. That's what he's saying. Again, in your minds, my guess is some of you, and I think this way too, I get it. This is why I can call it out because I know I have this problem. When I see that and I'm like, okay, so following God's laws more carefully is giving me more freedom. That doesn't seem to make sense, right? Let me give you another passage, James 1.25 in the New Testament. If you look carefully into the perfect law, that's God's way of life, that sets you free. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. What this is saying is, if you look into the law and you live by it, you will have freedom. God will open more doors for you. But it's hard to do this. So let me give you a principle of following Christ that is one of the most important things you're ever going to hear about what it means to follow Christ. And it is this. In order to be truly free, you must surrender. I think in American Christianity, this is one of the hardest things that we deal with. It's one of the hardest things that I deal with when I'm talking with people about certain addictions or, or, or things that they're going through in their marriage or whatever the case is. It is this, this problem of surrender. They want to do life their way. And a lot of times it gets them into trouble. And it actually steals their freedom. In fact, the very freedom that you start chasing becomes the thing that enslaves you. Some of you know this. Some of you still have things that enslave you. You want to be free from it, and you got into it because you were doing things the way that you wanted to do them. And what this says is, to become truly free, you must surrender. You want to stop drinking, but you can't. You want to live with a happy and positive outlook, but you, and you try, but you can't. You want to manage your anger, but you don't. You want to stop yelling at your children, but you can't seem to stop. We find out really quickly that we're not free, don't we? All of a sudden, we find out. uh, In fact, here's another one. I I really want to think that I've become unselfish as a person. (laughs) I like to think that way about myself all the time. I, I don't know about you guys. I'm a li- I live in fancy world sometimes, right? I, I don't know. I mean, I just think, man, I am so unselfish. I'm doing, I'm doing better. Man, I'm doing good, God. And then something comes up, and there's only two cookies left, and I want both of them. <laughs> and everything in me says, just take both of them. You deserve it. You've worked hard today. You scraped the ice on your entire driveway. <laughs> Anybody else spend your day doing that yesterday? Man, my shoulders. <laughs> Eat both of them. Take them. Then your, your family doesn't need them. They're not even home. They won't even remember. Oh, that is insidious. 
And I realize I am not free to be unselfish because I still struggle with my sin and my selfishness. So why is this? Remember the circles that we've been talking about? Okay? That we all have these circles in our life. We have the will, right? We have the will, and we have the mind, and we have the body, right? And, and all three of those things have to be in line with each other. They have to be integrated by the soul. See, what we try to do is we try to do self-help tactics. We try to, okay, I'm going to have more mindfulness. I'm going I'm to have more mindfulness about my positivity, right? I'm going to think more about glass half full than glass empty, well, that can help your mind, but it's not going to necessarily help your body or your will, and it certainly is not going to necessarily help your soul because the only thing that can help your soul is God. The soul has to align your body and your mind and your will. It has to force it into submission. The soul controls all of it. It's who you really are. And the only way for your soul to control all the other three aspects of who you are is to get the soul and put him in charge, put, put God in charge and allow him to direct your soul and your soul direct everything else. And then it will give you freedom. See, what happens is we get trapped in three different ways, three different levels, I would say, of sin. And the book actually talks about these, and it's just so phenomenal. It's just, it's very practical, but it's also kind of theological. But I want to tell you what the three levels that trap us are, because it's important for us to know what we're up against. We need to know what we're up against, what our battle is, what our struggle is. The first level that we get trapped in, that our soul gets trapped in, is original sin. Okay? Original sin is, maybe you've heard of this, maybe you've never heard of this. This is a very theological term. If you go to seminary, you'll hear this all the time. Personally, I, I don't know, we get lost in theological terms, and uh, how I'm going to describe it, probably a lot of theologians would argue with me, and we could spend years arguing over it, and I think that's stupid in my mind, but whatever. But original sin, very simply, let me try to explain it in very simple terms. All it means is that you and I, every human being that will be born and that has been born, when you are born, you're born into sin. That's what this means. Original sin means when Adam and Eve sinned, they entered sin into every human being that will ever exist. So when any child is born, they have sin. That's what original sin means. It's not because they did anything wrong to start. It's because we're born with sin. We have original sin when we start. Okay? So that's one level that we trapped. And by the way, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, humanly speaking, that we can do to solve that problem. There's nothing that I can do. I can't pray uh, the next 12,000 babies that are going to be born today or tomorrow. I can't pray them enough and, and say, God, I want them not to have original sin. They, we can't do that. Original sin exists. It's just the way it is. Therefore, we need God. Every person. We have original sin. There's no humanly speaking way to solve this problem. The second level that we get trapped in is our sinfulness. So you guys, if you've read the Bible, the Bible will talk about two different words. They seem very similar, but they're, they're two different things. The Bible talks about sins, S-I-N-S, plural. Those would be the things that you do, the things that you commit, the things that you don't do. This would be lying. This would be gossip. This would be lusting after somebody. This would be whatever the case is. These are things that you do, things that you commit 
in your life. Okay? Those are sins. But then the Bible also talks about sin, not plural, S-I-N. When the Bible says just the word sin and not sins, it's talking about your sinfulness, our propensity, our tendency to want to go against God and do our own thing. This would be like pride, right? Pride is sinful. And what does pride do? I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but why do you yell at your spouse? Have you ever thought about this? Why do you get angry with your spouse? You know why? Because of your pride. Did you realize that? Whenever you get angry, now every now and then, is there righteous anger? Is there an okay place for anger? Yes, there is. God got angry. Jesus got angry. It's okay to be angry. But most of the time, let's be honest, when I get angry with Laura or when I get angry with my kids or when I get angry with another person, most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time, it's not because I am like, I believe there's a holy God and that is wrong. You need to do something different. You know why I'm angry? I'm angry because you took the last cookie and I wanted it. I'm angry because you called me out or you looked at me like I'm not a good dad and I'm angry about it. You just hurt my pride a little bit. And so I'm going to come back at you. You know what I'm talking about? Pride selfishness, jealousy. These are not sins only in and of themselves, but they lead to other sins that we commit outside ourselves. They show themselves as sinfulness, but then the third level, it leads to the third level, which is sinful acts. These are the things that we actually do. These are the things that we tend to focus on when we talk about sin. These are the things we see when we see somebody gossiping or when we hear somebody tell a lie or whatever the case. This, these are sinful acts. These are actions. These are things that happen that people do or don't do that God says we shouldn't. So that's what traps us. So my question to you is, how in the world, what kind of hope do we have? <laughs> we are trapped by original sin. We're trapped by our sinfulness and we're trapped by sinful acts, things that we do. Are you kidding me? How in the world is there any hope? Right? You're like, wow, this is a great message. Thanks. Should have stayed in bed. <laughs> I didn't have to slide down my driveway <laughs> this morning. Right? So where's the hope? Well, the truth is Paul tells us that we're all in this same boat. Listen to what he says. Romans 3.23, he says, everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. He's talking about sinfulness. He's talking about original sin. He's talking about sinful acts. We all are in the same boat. So if you ever feel like, oh man, I'm horrible. Man, pastors remind me how bad I am. Well, just let me remind you, I don't think this is encouraging, but just we're all bad. <laughs> so if you're not feeling bad, well, start. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We're, what, what Paul is saying is we're all in the same boat. You're all born into sin. You all have sinfulness. You all have original sin. You all have committed sinful acts. Welcome to the same boat that every human being is in. What does that say? It's all it's saying is we need God. You need Jesus. Because there's no solution medically, biologically, psychologically, mindfully, whatever, that solves this problem other than Jesus. And Paul, a few chapters later, after Romans chapter 3 to Romans chapter 7, he explains this. I want to read this passage. It's, it's like eight, nine verses long. So it's long, so just bear with me. But you're going to catch what Paul is saying because he says it like 12,000 times in nine verses. Okay, just, just catch what he says. I want you to listen to this. It'll get a little bit interesting, okay? Romans chapter 7, starting with verse 14. And the Apostle Paul writing, 
So the trouble is not with the law. He's talking about the Bible. The, the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. We've made that point, right? I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. What he's saying is, if I understand that what I'm doing is wrong, then that means I agree that the law that God wrote is right. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. So that's what he's trying to say there. He's saying, but if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. Are you catching the theme here? <laughs> I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. <laughs> I have discovered this principle of life, that when I do what is right, and when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. Now, I want to go on in just a minute. I want you to catch this next part. Okay, because what he has just said is, he said, I can't seem to get this. My sinful nature is constantly dragging me into sin. And can you tell Paul's, he's trying to explain to new Christians, he's, he's writing this letter to new followers of Christ in the city of Rome, during the Roman Empire. So he's trying to explain to them why they're not getting it either. <laughs> why are you struggling so much? And he says, it's because of your sin. But listen to what he says. He says, I love God's law with all my heart. But there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. We could add the body and the will. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is in, within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Again, he's talking about the lack of freedom. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? And then he gives us the answer. Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. See, what sin does is it traps you. It catches you. And it actually, when you think, hey, I can do this. I don't have mom and dad around, or I can do this. There's no law against this, or the pastor's not around, or I'm not around people from Northridge, and so I can do this. And you think, I have the freedom, I have the freedom. But then all of a sudden, sin traps you and reigns you back in and steals more of your freedom than you had before. Let me just illustrate this. Uh, I took a picture out our back window just the other day. In fact, here's the picture beautiful. I love our backyard, especially the pine trees and the snowfalls. I know some of you hate snow right now, but just, you know, go with this, all right? But I looked out, and it's just, it's just beautiful. And you can see the tracks, right? We don't have that pristine snow like some of you guys have. Our kids, as soon as it snows, it's like, boom, out there and just all over. But beautiful. The sun was shining, the trees, all kinds of stuff. It was just, it looked serene. It looked like you just want to go out there and just, ah, oh, it's amazing. The problem is, of course, this is a screenshot of my phone a few seconds later. <laughs> yeah, this was a week ago Wednesday, right? That day that nobody wanted to go out. Minus 49 degrees wind chill. 
Now, not only do we not want to go outside, but let's be honest, it's not only that, but it's dangerous to be outside for any length of time. So this is a perfect illustration of what sin does to you. Sin will give you a picture of something that you really think you want. It could be a substance. It could be a person that you think you should date. It could be a person that you want to give some gossip to. It, it, whatever the case is, sin will tempt you and say, you want to do this. This will make you look good. This will make you feel good. And it lures, it'll lure you outside. But then what sin will do, and this is, uh, this is every time, this is what sin will do. Sin will lock the door and make sure you don't have your keys or your phone, and now you're outside. Where you thought you were going to gain pleasure, where you thought things were going to be good, where you thought you're going to have more freedom. Now I'm not trapped by the house, now I'm outside. But when you get outside, you realize, oh wow, this is not what I thought, it's not what I wanted. It may not happen right away, but it might happen the next day, it might be in a few hours, it might be a few weeks down the road, and you realize how free you're not. And the freedom you were chasing is actually a death trap. Because if somebody got locked outside, we all know it's not very long before they're going to be destroyed. And that's exactly what sin does to us. And we have to be free from it. And the only way to do that, God tells you the only way to do that is to give your life, is to surrender to Jesus. Psalm 19.7 says this. The instructions of the Lord, the law of the Lord, we could say, are perfect. Reviving the soul. You know what the word revive means? I think I, I know what it means too, but I, I looked it up. Let me give you the definitions, all right? Here's, here's the definitions. To restore to life or consciousness. To regain life, consciousness, or strength. Or to give new strength or energy to something. I want you to look at those definitions. Look at those words. That is what God wants to do for your life and for your soul. He wants to revive your soul. He wants to bring your soul back from dead. And, there, and this is the truth. Okay, And I've said this, I've mentioned this several times over the last few weeks. You'll probably hear it again a few more thousand times before I'm gone. The Bible describes people without Jesus as walking dead. In our vernacular, that would be like zombies. People who look alive, but they're actually dead. Did you know that you're surrounded by walking dead? According to God, anyway. If they don't have Jesus, what God says is they're not free. They're actually spiritually dead. They're not alive. And that's what this is saying is that I need to learn the laws of God in order to revive the soul, in order to literally come back to life, revive you. Another passage in Psalms says a similar thing. It says this, But they who delight in the law of the Lord, they meditate, meditating on it day and night. They are like trees planted along the riverbank, bearing fruit each season. Their leaves never wither, and they prosper in all they do. Let me give you one more illustration of what it looks like to have your soul revived and what it can be for your life. This picture behind me is a picture of something called the Tree of Life. It's located in the country of Bahrain in the Middle East. And uh, that, that, that country is almost entirely desert. I mean, completely. It's desert, sand, all, everywhere. That's pretty much all it is. 
Uh, beautiful country, but sand and desert. And this is known as the Tree of Life, and it's actually a tourist attraction. You can kind of see the fence that they built around it because thousands of people visit this tree every single year. Maybe tens of thousands. They have a lot of people visit it. It's a tourist attraction. And the reason they come to see this tree is because seemingly this tree is growing in what looks like is just a sea of sand. There is no discernible. They, they've, actually done, they've actually tried to search, and they have found no sources of water near this tree. Now, there clearly has to be something, but they haven't found it. And so this tree is estimated to be 400 years old. 400 years old. And the tree not only survives, but it's thriving. Less so because people are constantly picking on it and all kind of stuff, but it's thriving. In fact, um, this is the only vegetation in several mile area. Here's an aerial picture of the same tree. You can see kind of the people around there. That's what it looks like. There's a tree in the middle of sand, and then for miles around, there's no other vegetation. <laughs> it's just dry, drought, nothing. <laughs> nothing there. And then all of a sudden, there's a tree. What's interesting is what makes this tree not only survive but thrive is a couple of key things. I want to share them with you because they're very important and they have great direct parallels to your life spiritually. The first reason why this tree is so healthy and thrives in seemingly a sea of sand where it should not even, not only thrive but survive even, the first reason is because its root system goes extremely deep. They have done studies on this tree and this type of tree, not all these types of trees, but some of the types of trees, depending on where they're living, and in this case, this would be the case with this tree, that their root system sometimes goes more than 150 feet deep into the ground. Can you imagine 150 feet? 150 feet. That's like 15 basketball hoops straight down into the ground. Can you imagine a root that goes that far? But this tree does that in order to find the source of water or in order to anchor it because if it's anchored in sand, that's going to be a problem. <laughs> so it has to go deep in order to keep it steady and still and also to find water. The second thing that makes this tree amazing is that the, re, uh, the reproductive parts of the tree, the flowers and the fruit that it produces that helps it reproduce its branches and all that stuff, Actually, most trees, when there's a drought or anything like that, you've learned about tree rings and they can tell like if, uh, if there were two or three year period where there was drought and it was hard on the tree because the tree kind of like shrinks. It kind of shrivels it and it doesn't flower or it doesn't bear fruit for those couple of years. This tree is the opposite. When the harsher conditions comes, the drier it is, the worse drought that comes, the more it flowers and the more it blossoms and the more fruit is born out of the tree. Interesting, right? So the worse the conditions, the more it blossoms and blooms and produces fruit. You guys know where I'm going with this, don't you? If you give your soul to God, this tree is a picture of what he wants you to be in a world that wants to kill you, wants to suck you dry, wants to trap you, and wants to destroy you. And what God wants for you and those around you is he wants you to thrive. He wants you to bear fruit. The most amazing people in my life that have spoken into my life are the ones who when 
horrible bad things happened in their life, they were still singing praises to God. And they were still trusting in Jesus. And they were saying, they weren't like, like you know, horrible things. They're like, I love this. This is so great. But they were saying, God is still good. I'm not enjoying this. This is horrible. But I know that God will take me through it and God will get me out of it. Even if it takes a while. And what God wants to do with your soul and with mine is he wants to revive it. He wants to bring it back to life. And he wants you to thrive. He wants you to bear fruit in every part, every aspect of your life, even when things are dry. Some of you, are, if you're in a good time of life, this makes sense to you. Some of you are going through some difficult things. And I know that. And it's hard for you to think about bearing fruit, bearing good stuff for other people in the midst of the season that you're in. But I'm just here to tell you that in the midst of your soul, if you surrender to the law of God and His ways, He wants to bear fruit from your life. And He wants to see you see fruit in your life. So I want to leave you with this question this morning. Your soul needs freedom. But I want to ask you, is your soul free? I'm not asking if you have external freedom. I'm not asking if you can do whatever you want. I'm asking, is your soul free? Really? Is it free? Free to be exactly who God made you to be. Do you have freedom? The deepest sense of freedom. Let's pray.